participate in the Iwana ministry too on Wednesday nights. It's just a joy to walk through the building and see this place uh, full of children and leaders who are helping with that. There's a note in the bulletin about uh, the number of students that are involved in Iwana. Uh, some 275 kids each week through the Cubbies and Sparks and the older children as well. And uh, that's tremendous. I mean, studies have time and time again shown how uh, most of the people who come to know Christ, about 84% of those who come to faith in Christ, do so before age 14. And uh, that's why that's a very important outreach of our church, to touch those kids while they are young and uh, to teach them about Christ. So thanks. Uh, This morning we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 9, and I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn there. I'm going to read part of the chapter first. It's a longer chapter, and then we're going to be working our way through it this morning. Listen to what Paul writes, Romans chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. Paul says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. For theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, And from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, But it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, Not by works, but by him who calls, she was told. The older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, Then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common uses? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? 
What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, Unless the Lord Almighty had left his descendants, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been like Gomorrah. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this portion of your scripture this morning, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to understand what you are saying here. There are things that are difficult for us, things that are even troubling at times. And yet there are things that should give us great comfort and assurance about your sovereignty and your plan for man. And so, Lord, help us to hear what you want to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the passage that we are looking at today is one of the most difficult in all of Scripture. It is difficult because of what it says about God's sovereignty and election. It raises questions in our minds, and there are things that we want to try and understand and we wrestle with, and Christians disagree on how to understand them or how to take them. In fact, there are some who feel like, you know, if Paul had just left out chapters 9 to 11 and we could jump to 12, that would be just fine. Because chapters 12 through 16 touch on some very practical matters. Things like our relationships in the body of Christ, spiritual gifts, missions, and evangelism, our duty as citizens in a country in which we live. And so there are a number of practical items covered in that section. So why does Paul talk about these things in chapters 9 to 11? Well, if Paul had left this section of Scripture out, there would be some important questions that would be unanswered. In chapter 8, Paul had talked about God's promise that all that he calls, he justifies. And all that he justifies, he will also glorify. He has given us his word on that. That those whom he calls, in terms of that effective calling, those who come to faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, will be justified and they will be glorified. But you can imagine, if Paul was talking to a Jewish audience and they're thinking in their mind about this, so they're going, now wait a minute, Paul. I mean, weren't the Jews also called? I mean, wasn't Israel chosen? Why is it that all of them have not believed? Why have they not come to faith in Christ? Has God's Word failed in some way? And if it could happen to them, could it also happen to us as Christians? So there are some important questions that we need to answer here in terms of our understanding of God's sovereignty and this doctrine of election. The doctrine of election is defined like this by Wayne Grudem in his book, Bible Doctrines. And Wayne Grudem, I had him also as a professor. He taught at Bethel Seminary for a few years, and he also taught at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, which is the Free Church Seminary, and now he's down in Arizona 
at a seminary that he teaches in the Phoenix area. But here's how he has defined election. Election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. Now take a look at that and think about that again. Election is an act of God where before creation, in other words, before this world was made, God chose some to be saved. Not on account of any foreseen merit in them. In other words, not on account of something that He saw in us that was better or more, more worthy than somebody else. But He chose some to be saved only because of His sovereign good pleasure. If that is true, that God has chosen some for salvation before the creation of the world, it raises some questions in our mind. There are questions that people ask about that. Questions like, well, is that fair? Or why did God do that? Is that just? I mean, how does all of this fit together with the other passages of Scripture that seem to talk about our responsibility and our accountability to make choices and decisions? You see, what Paul writes in chapter 9 is what theologians call a theodicy. It is a defense of God's sovereignty and justice. And I think it's a very important topic for us to think about because from time to time this discussion will come up in our uh, ABFs, our Adult Bible Fellowship groups. It comes up in our small groups. and There are times when people will express their feelings strongly on each side. I mean, and some people love this kind of discussion and for other people it makes them a little bit uncomfortable. Some people can separate things and talk about it and kind of in terms of their head and their understanding of what's going on here. And for others, boy, this is a hard issue. And what do you mean God's chosen some and not others? And how do we know who's chosen and who's not? So we're going to try and work through those things this morning. And I hope that you'll follow with me as we go along in this text. How does Paul begin this discussion? Where does he start? Well, in the first section of verses 1 to 9, Paul will declare to us that God's Word is true. God's Word is true. It is authoritative. It has not failed, he will say in verse 6. And I think that's a very good place to start. Because we need to settle settle the question in our own mind first, what do we believe about God's Word? Is the Bible His Word? Is it true? Is it authoritative over us? Because so many people make decisions about behavior or things that they believe based upon their feelings. You know, it's like if something doesn't feel wrong, well, then it must be right. I mean, uh, you know, some people will justify stealing or lying or cheating on an exam or their taxes or something like that with, you know, well, everybody's doing it or, you know, that company's not going to miss it or the government won't miss it or whatever. We can justify a lot of things by our feelings, but that doesn't make it right. The real question, again, is what does the Bible say about these things, about our behavior or actions? In the same way, sometimes I've been in discussions with people who would say, you know, I don't think a loving God would send anyone to hell. They just don't like the doctrine of hell. They don't feel good about that. Well, I don't know that anybody who really feels good about that 
You know, it is a hard thing to think about that there are going to be some people who will spend eternity separated from God in eternal punishment forever. The question is not how I feel about that or how that makes me feel. The question is, what does God say about that? What did Jesus say about those things? He spoke about hell more than anyone. And if His Word is true, if it is authoritative over your life and mine, then I need to come to understand what it says and trust in it and not trust in my feelings. And so when we come to this doctrine of election, the question isn't how does that make me feel or do I feel good about it or not? The question is, does the Bible teach this? Is this true? And why does God say these things? I think it's also significant here when you look at how Paul begins in verses 1 to 5. Paul begins by talking and sharing his heart. You know, some people might have thought because of Paul's turning to the Gentiles, he just didn't like the Jews. And he was reacting against them and he was mad at them. And Paul shares in verses 1 to 5 his love for his people. He expresses his deep love about as strongly as you can. He said, I speak the truth in Christ. I mean, he is calling upon God as his witness. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit that he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. He wants his people, his countrymen, to be saved. He wants them to come to believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. He said, I could wish, if I could, I could wish that I myself would be accursed. Literally, he's saying, an anathema, cut off from God. If that would mean salvation for all of the Jewish people, that's how strongly he loves them. I'm challenged by that. I mean, do you and I love people that much? Do we care about someone else's salvation that deeply? that we would say, God, I wish that they would come to know Christ. That You would call them. I remember when I came to faith in Christ and, and I was growing in my relationship with God as a college student. You know, I thought about those friends that I had in high school and where they were spiritually. And I know those feelings of wanting them all to come to know Christ as their Savior and Lord. I wanted them to know this joy that I knew. I wanted them to come into a relationship with Him that they might be saved. And I took those steps to share the Gospel with them. That's what Paul is talking about here. When we understand the consequences of heaven or hell, eternal joy or eternal judgment, and we look at people around us, we begin to see things differently. And Paul was passionate about bringing the gospel to these individuals who did not know Christ. He talked about the privileges that Israel had had, that they were adopted as sons. They had the divine glory. They saw the Shekinah glory fill the temple. They had the covenants that were given through their forefathers, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had the law that was given through Moses. They had the temple, the place where God had chosen to dwell upon the earth. They had the promises that were given, the patriarchs. And through them would come the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And in verse 5, he declares about Jesus Christ here in one of the strongest affirmations of His deity in all of Scripture. Paul says about Christ that He is God over all, forever praised. 
He wants his people to come to know Christ in that way. And they have not. And it breaks his heart. And I think when we talk about the doctrine of election, we need to hold both of those things together. It takes some clear thinking in our head to be able to look at what the Scripture says. But we also need to feel this and feel about people in our heart a love and compassion that wants all people to be saved. Paul tells us here too that it is not as though God's Word has failed. For from the beginning, he will tell us in verses 6 and following that there have been two Israels. There is the physical Israel and there is the spiritual Israel. He says in verse 6, It is not as though God's Word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. He's saying that there are those who are sons of the covenant, if you will, who have come to faith and put their trust in God and come to believe in Him that are those children of promise. And there are also those who are physical descendants of Abraham that are simply children according to the flesh. He said in verse 7 going on that he said it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Not all who are physically descended from Abraham are Israel. There is a spiritual Israel within that group. And so just because some refuse to believe, it doesn't mean that God's Word has failed. God's Word is consistent in its application all the way along. In fact, in verse 27 of this chapter, he quotes Isaiah, who said that though the number of Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out His sentence on earth with speed and finality. Why it is that way, I cannot fully explain. Why it is that there is only a remnant who will be saved. I can't give you the whole answer on that one. I can tell you what the Scripture says, and I can tell you that Jesus Himself spoke that way. When He talked about the road to destruction being broad, and the road to life being narrow, and only a few will find it. But God has stated that in His Word. And so here is this remnant that have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now somebody might look at that and you might be thinking about it. Okay, I understand that God's Word is true, but I still have some questions about this. Does the Bible really teach the doctrine of election? And if so, how is that fair? Well, the Bible will go on to declare in this passage that God's decisions are just. All of his decisions, all of his counsel is just. That's just who he is. He is holy and righteous in everything that he does. But the Bible will clearly teach that God has made decisions or choices in salvation history. And Paul gives us some examples here. For example, God chose Isaac and not Ishmael as we saw in verses 6 to 9. God chose that the line of Christ would come through Isaac and not through Ishmael. Remember the promise had been given to Abraham that he would have a son even in his advanced age. And the years were going by. 
You know, Abraham had heard this promise and nothing had happened. And so there came this point where Sarah, his wife, thought that, you know, maybe maybe we need to kind of take things into our own hands. And so here, uh, you take Hagar, her servant, and through Hagar, you will have a son, and we will adopt him in a sense, or he will be considered as our own son. And so Abraham did that, and Ishmael was born. But God said, no, he is not the child of the promise. In fact, the child who would be born, Isaac, was a miracle baby if there ever was one. When you take the age of Sarah and Abraham and understand that they were well past the time when they could have children, if God had not intervened directly, there would have been no son. But God had both told them beforehand and then intervened so that Isaac was born. Now some would say, well, I understand there was a difference there. One was born of the slave woman, one born of the free woman. I understand that difference. Can you give me another example? Well, he does. In verses 10 to 14, he tells us that God chose Jacob and not Esau. And Jacob and Esau, well, they had the same mother and the same father. Not only that, they were born of the same act of conception. They were twins. And yet, what does the Scripture say about them? In verse 11, it says, Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by Him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger. God chose Jacob and not Esau. And why did He choose one and not the other? It wasn't because of anything that they had done. They were there uh, in the womb. They had not done anything good or bad. He had chosen them before in order that His purpose in election might stand. And He turned the natural order of things upside down when He said that the older will serve the younger. That's not the way that it was done in their culture. And then Paul goes on to say not only was this... God's sovereign choice, he explains it with this argument from the book of Malachi where he quotes, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now I know that that quote comes from Malachi in a later generation where by that time Israel and Edom had been ancient enemies of one another. And there was enmity or hatred between them. But God takes that statement, and here Paul applies it to their birth. That Jacob I love, or Jacob I chose, and Esau I hated or rejected. What do we say about that? Is that fair? Is God unjust? How does Paul answer it? In verse 14, he says, No, not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. He goes back to the Old Testament, to the time of Exodus, when God made that statement to Moses that God is a God of mercy and compassion. And he will show his mercy on those whom he chooses. You see, if we wanted justice, if that's what we were asking for, we would all be lost. Because we're all sinners. The fact that any of us are saved is only because of His mercy. And can God show mercy on whom He chooses? 
Paul is saying, yes, he can. It's interesting to me that uh, Paul draws so much upon the Old Testament in this section of Scripture. In fact, there are, in all of Paul's writings, there are 80 times when he quotes the Old Testament. 27 of them are here in chapters 9 to 11. What Paul is trying to do is to show how all of this is rooted in the Old Testament, how God is perfectly consistent in the way that he has chosen to reveal himself and act through history. And God will show mercy on whom he has mercy, and he will have compassion on those whom he has compassion. Paul goes on then, and he points to Pharaoh as an example in verses 17 and 18. Uh, He continues by saying, It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Salvation is not something that we can earn. It's not something that we do. It is God who initiates in this whole process of salvation. And it is dependent upon His mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh that I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God used Pharaoh to display his glory and power. And we look at that, and, and you know, when you think about Pharaoh as an example of one who rebelled against God and what he was asking him to do, when God said, let my people go, God could have taken Pharaoh's life the very first time that he rebelled, but he did not. He allowed him to live, and he used God, used Pharaoh for his purposes. In fact, I believe that what God did with Pharaoh is what he does in Romans chapter 1. When people turn away from him, and how Romans chapter 1 says, Therefore God gave them over to their sin, to the fruit of their sin. I think God was giving Pharaoh over time and time again to his rebellion and his hardness. And what's interesting in the Scripture, in Exodus, for example, it tells us both things were going on. It says Pharaoh hardened his heart, and it tells us God hardened his heart. Both are true and taught in the Scripture. There is this joining together of God's actions and man's actions in this. And I believe that there is a strong warning here for all of us. That God is patient and He is long-suffering. 2 Peter 3.9 says that God does not want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But God won't wait forever. There comes a time when enough is enough and God acts. He did it in the days of Noah when he was long-suffering over man's sin and then came the flood. He did it with Israel and their rebellion against him and then came the Assyrians who carried away the northern ten tribes. He would do it again with Judah and the Babylonians in the south. Time and time again, God has shown his mercy and his waiting, but then comes time for judgment when he acts. And so it will be at the end of time. And there are also these wonderful statements that speak about God's love and His desire that all people should come to know Him, that everyone should come to that point of repentance. And that too is one of those mysteries of how these things come together, that God states that He desires all people to come to repentance, and yet not all will come to that point. The Bible is clear that it calls each one of us to be responsible for the decisions that we make. In Hebrews 3, the Scripture says, Today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your hearts. 
but respond to his call and come to faith in Christ. So let's push a little bit farther on this. And I understand that this is uh, more of a teaching passage or message today than, than um, some are. I don't have as many illustrations or stories to tell as we work through this because it's more of a line-by-line type of progression through the text. Does the Bible teach election? That God has chosen some people to be saved? Yes, it does. And here are other passages in Scripture that make that point. For example, in Acts 13, verse 48, when Paul and Barnabas were preaching the gospel in Antioch and Pisidia, Luke writes these words. He said, When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad, and they honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Did you catch that? All who were appointed for eternal life believed. Luke makes that comment in passing. He doesn't explain it. He doesn't try to defend it. He just states it. That's the way it is. That the gospel was preached. And they could preach the gospel with confidence because everywhere that they went, God had already gone before them. And He knew those who would come to faith in Him. And so they preached and the Gentiles believed. In Romans chapter 11, verse 7, in this very section, when Paul explains what happened with Israel, why some were saved and some were not, he says the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. There's a statement about God's election. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 to 6, when Paul explains God's choice of believers, he writes this, And he said, For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace. Paul wrote those words to the believers, to the church, to give us great confidence that our salvation doesn't waver when we waver, that if we have been chosen by God and we are in Christ, we are secure. Because our salvation depends upon Him. And He has predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ. Why? Because of the pleasure of God. Because of His sovereign will to the praise of His glorious grace. God is God, and He is to be honored and praised forever. And in the book of Revelation, this one I do not have up there, but another reference would be Revelation 17.8. John tells us that the names of those who believe have been written in the book of life from the creation of the world. That is amazing. It's astounding that our names were written in the book of life from the creation of the world. So the question then comes very naturally, and you can see how Paul, you know, he's preached this before. He's heard the questions. He's had people, you know, raise their hand and say, Paul, I don't get this, or I have a question about this. And the very next question that comes up in verse 19 is then, why does God still blame us for who rejects or who resists His will? You could hear Paul's Jewish audience saying that. Why have some not come to faith in Christ? Or even among the Gentiles, why do some not believe if it's all based on what God has done and He's chosen? Why does God still blame us 
because who can resist his will? How does Paul answer that in the Scripture? Well, the Scripture tells us that God's sovereignty does not take away from human responsibility. Both are true in the Scripture. And I've got to admit that Paul's answer to the question in verse 19 is not very satisfying to some. How does Paul answer this question of who resists his will or why does he still blame us? Paul says in verse 20, Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? You know, when I think about Paul's answer here, when he comes back and he says, Who are you to talk back to God? It's a little bit like when you've had a discussion or maybe an argument with your kids about curfew, and they want to stay out till 12, and you say, No, you need to be home by 11. And they say, Why? And you say, Because I'm the parent and I said so. That's why. That's a little bit how this feels. Now, as a parent, you have reasons, but there are times when you just don't want to get into the argument. And you don't feel like you should have to defend yourself on everything that you say. I think that there is some of that going on here in the Scripture. That God is God, and God doesn't have to explain Himself to anyone. And Paul goes on here and says, you know, if a potter... A common potter can make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use. Can't God do the same thing if He so wills? And He says here in verse 22, He raises this question, What if God, choosing to show His wrath, what if God wanted to display His wrath and His power? And so He bore with great patience objects of His wrath prepared for destruction. It's a hard word, but Paul is saying, what if God chose to do that? Can't He do that if He is God? And what if He did this to make the riches of His glory known to the objects of His mercy, whom He prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom He also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? Can't God do that? Is He not God? You see, what Paul is trying to say here is that God is free and sovereign in His actions over individuals and nations. God is completely sovereign. God is perfect in all of His attributes. He's perfect in His love, in His holiness, in His justice. And God is also perfect in all of His choices. And we may not understand it fully, but we can trust Him and rest that He knows what He is doing. And yet at the same time that the Bible declares that God is free and sovereign in His actions over individuals and nations, He will declare that man is fully responsible for the choices he makes. And that our personal decision to believe in Christ or not to believe in Him will have eternal consequences. Even in this passage, when Paul talks about Israel's unbelief, and this will come up next week in verses 30 to 33, Paul says that the reason they did not believe is that they stumbled over the stumbling stone. They stumbled over Jesus Christ. 
You see, no one's going to be in hell and said that, you know, I didn't have a chance. No one's going to be able to offer God an excuse for their behavior or their decisions. Everyone who goes to hell goes there because of the choices that they made. The choices to reject Jesus Christ, God's provision of salvation. And yet how all of this fits together is a mystery. The Bible teaches that God is absolutely sovereign. He is God. But it also teaches human responsibility for the choices and decisions that we make. How do we resolve that tension? We can't. We cannot fully resolve that tension. It is one of the mysteries of the faith, just like the Trinity. I can't explain everything about the Trinity. How there are three persons and yet one God. I can give examples and illustrations and try to explain it, but ultimately it is a mystery. The same thing is true about the incarnation of Christ or this hypostatic union as it is called, the union where Jesus Christ is fully man and fully God and how both natures, I mean, are present there in one undivided nature. I mean, it's just its amazing to think about who Jesus Christ or one undivided person that He is fully man and fully God. You know, in the history of the church, there have been two different ways of trying to explain how God's sovereignty and man's responsibility work together and how election fits into this. Uh, both are orthodox. Both would be represented in our denomination. Both would even be represented in our church. The Reformed tradition, or Calvinism as it is called, believes that God chose us simply because He decided to bestow His love on us. It is unconditional election because it is not based on any merit in us. It is based on His purpose and not ours. The Arminian tradition, which follows Wesley and others, would say that God's election is on the basis of foreseen faith. That God who stands outside of time looked at man and looked at our responses and He chose on the basis of our foreseen faith. God in advance knew those who would believe and He chose them. Each side recognizes that some will be saved and some will be lost. Both acknowledge that. And both are trying to explain it. And when the question comes down to those who wrestle with this issue, how do you know if you are one of the elect or not? How do you know if you are chosen? The answer would be, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the way Paul would put it. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. How do you know if you are one of the elect? Do you believe in Christ? And have you chosen to follow Him and obey Him? That's the way it works out in our world. Reformed theologians will emphasize God's sovereignty and that salvation is all of grace. That's where I stand. I believe that. Arminian theologians will emphasize man's free will and salvation and the responsibility that we have to follow Him. And that is true that we have that responsibility. The amazing thing to me is how Paul can put those truths side by side in Scripture. How he can give both explanations, as he does here in Romans 9 through 11, that the reason the Jews did not uh, believe was because they rejected Jesus Christ. 
And yet in another spot he can say that the elect obtained it and the rest were hardened. What's the conclusion? I believe that we need to hold on to both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. That ultimately those things fit together in the mind of God and we cannot fully explain all of it. But we need to respect the differences. And we need to respect the differences when Christians disagree. And as I said at the beginning, some enjoy those kind of discussions. I've gotten into discussions like that where some are trying to persuade me differently and I'm trying to persuade them and that's okay. We can talk and we can speak from the Scripture what we believe. But there's a tension there and we need to respect that. And when we read the Scriptures... I believe the best thing that we can do is we need to let the Scriptures speak for themselves and not try to explain them away by human logic or systems. I think we get into trouble when we try to answer questions that the Scripture doesn't. And we need to accept that there are mysteries to our faith that we do not fully understand because God is bigger than we are. So the way that I suggest when it comes to reading the Scripture is that we let the commands be commands. We let the warnings be warnings. We let the passages that talk about God's election and predestination be statements about God's election and predestination. And we trust Him to work it all out for His glory and His good. We need to let God be God. And we also need to acknowledge that we are fully accountable to Him for the choices we make. Let's pray. Father, You are awesome in all that You do. And You are so far beyond us that it is hard for our human mind to get around some of these things. And that should be expected because You are God. And we wrestle with that tension. And we come to the point of acceptance in You. That, Father, we trust You. We believe in You and we trust You that in Your counsel and in Your will and Your purposes, You are sovereign and free to do as You please. And yet You fully expect of us obedience and faith. You call us to put our trust in You. And so we come today humbly before You and we acknowledge that You alone are God. And we have chosen to place our faith in You as our Savior and Lord and we trust You. Father, may this doctrine of election not cause us uncertainty or worry, but may it give to us that assurance of faith that you are in control of all of these things, that you know us fully well, and that you are holding us in your hands. I thank you for that, and we praise you today in Jesus' name. Amen.